But if we continue tracking on the way we're heading now, we'll get to 2.8 degrees if we meet all the current commitments. And unfortunately, there's 4 degrees and 5 degrees of global warming. And 4 degrees of global warming is 6 degrees of across Australia. Even the 2.8 degrees, the 3 degrees, will mean 50 degrees Celsius days here in Swan Pool, on the outskirts of Melbourne and throughout many parts of Australia. Not every day, but you can't do anything outside on 50 degrees Celsius days or you will die from heat exhaustion. That's world-renowned and Melbourne-based climate scientist Professor David Caroli speaking at the recent Swan Pool Environmental Film Festival. And for me, that sort of closed the circle because Professor Caroli was one of the speakers at the first Swan Pool Environmental Film Festival in 2013. And it was at that event I was able to encourage him to include a slide in his presentation that promoted an event in Shepparton, which was the first forum organised and staged by the Shepparton-based Slap Tomorrow. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Before we go any further, I'd urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. David Caroli has always been something of a personal North Star. I became keen to know more about the climate crisis in the early 2000s. And so learning or discovering that the University of Melbourne had lots of free lectures about this issue, about the climate crisis. I regularly went to Melbourne for free lectures. And then in 2009, I learned or discovered that the University of Melbourne had a thing called a festival of ideas that went for a whole week. They had a whole range of speakers. And one of those was Professor David Caroli. I heard David Caroli speak and I had my doubts about the climate crisis, but he erased all those, every one of them. I was mesmerised. Soon after I approached David and suggested he come and speak in Shepparton, which he did, but it took two years to get him here because he was involved at the time as a lead author with the, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so he didn't make it to Shepparton until about 2011, where he spoke and was heard by about 70 people. Ever since, I've followed David, and he's been to Shepparton a couple of times since, and to Tura once. He is sort of like a personal hero. Anyway, let's have a listen out of what David said at the Swan Pool Environmental Film Festival. So thank you, Rona, and thank you... Swanpool and Swanpool Environmental Film Festival for having me back again because one part that Rona left out from the introduction is that I was here, I think, at the very first Swanpool Environmental Film Festival way back in... When was it? 2013. Exactly. <laughs> 2013 chorus line there. 
I was invited then, and there are, in fact, I, I shared with Ian um, my presentation again, the slides, because I managed to dig it out from the archive on my computer. Um, but there's another part of the introduction that I wasn't going to share with Rona, and that was an introduction that Patrick McKacky, who was at the time director of the National Gallery of Victoria, based in Melbourne, and he was doing a series of effectively coordinating something called, um, with a set of talks and lectures relevant to the environmental aspects of climate change at the University of Melbourne. And I had a lot of conversations with him and he described me when he introduced me in the first one of these public fora as the scariest person he'd met at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not scary. My grandchildren still find me not scary at all, particularly when I read them bedtime stories which is only now for the youngest granddaughter who I take to school every morning now that I'm retired. They live close to us. But I said, unfortunately, it's the message that's scary and you will have to decide whether the message that I give you today is still scary and I promise you it will be, but there is some good news at the end about how we can stop getting it too scary. What we can do to prevent this problem from getting too scary at all. And there's something that we can all do. Something that we can do now and in the future from preventing climate change from getting too scary. I'm going to focus on essentially an update on the science of climate change, the impacts and the solutions based on the most recent assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. There are links in the references that I'm going to make available to everyone in this talk. It'll be, I think the link will probably be provided on the Banala Sustainability Group's website and you will be able to download my presentation from there. Don't try to download all of the IPCC assessment report. It's only six and a half thousand pages long in 10 point font. Uh, but you know that just means it's like six volumes of the yellow pages for Melbourne. But they don't print a yellow pages for Melbourne anymore. You can only get it online. Um, when the first part of the assessment report came out, in 2021, Antonio Guterres was the Secretary-General and still is the Secretary-General of the United Nations and he said the IPCC report is a code red for humanity. And you can see a demonstration on that picture on the right-hand side here which basically shows people saying, listen to the science. Now, I know that most of you will be aware of some of the things that I'll be talking about. I will also promise you that there will be some slides that you are unlikely to have seen before. Unless, of course, you came to that first sustainability CEF festival, which I'm not showing all of them, but I'll be showing some of them. This one also is a relatively new one because Andrew McKenzie, 
Chief Executive Officer at the time of BHP, the largest mining company, had already recognised that the evidence of climate change is abundant. Global warming is indisputable. This is like my summary that I'll give at the end. He said the planet will survive, and I think he's correct. There are things that humanity could do with nuclear weapons that might destroy the planet, but there is nothing about climate change that will destroy the planet. It might destroy much of humanity. It might destroy many of our ecosystems. And that's why Andrew McKenzie said that many species will not survive. There will be major impact on the Great Barrier Reef, major impact on many endangered species in Australia. But let's also look at this graphic. This is what's happened to global temperatures. That graphic shows the global average temperatures from six or seven different observational data sets. Some of them didn't go back to 1850. Some of them only start in the more recent period, 1900. But they all agree there's been a very pronounced global warming. Now, more than 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Where pre-industrial levels is not really pre-industrial, 1800 or earlier, we only have enough global average data for the period from 1850 to 1900, which is described as pre-industrial in the IPCC assessments, but is not really pre-industrial. The Paris Agreement for which essentially all governments have committed to, is seeking to limit global warming to well below two degrees, but we're already above one degree above pre-industrial levels. And there's a bunch of things that I'm going to talk about which will seem to you extremely obvious related to global targets for limiting temperature in the future. And I'm going to get to those a little bit later. But let's now look at what I think is the most important graphic that I'm going to show. What is shown here in this what is a exponentially growing curve is the carbon dioxide concentrations over the last thousand years. And this is important because what it shows is a very, very rapid and accelerating growth in the increase in carbon dioxide concentrations since the pre-industrial era, since before 1800. And we're now at more than 410 parts per million. The early carbon dioxide concentrations are extracted from ice cores from Antarctica. And when snow falls in Antarctica and builds up and builds up and gets squashed down to make ice, it traps little air bubbles. And when ice cores are sampled from Antarctica, you can get air bubbles from more than 800,000 years ago. And at no time in that 800,000 years has carbon dioxide concentrations been higher than 310 parts per million. And now we're at 410 parts per million. Now, it could be just natural variability, and there's a relatively well-known former scientist, former because he no longer 
practices any science, and it's not clear that he did when he was at the University of Melbourne, where he was head of my department. He's written a book called Heaven and Earth, which Tony Abbott, that other expert on climate change, <laughs> says is a highly referenced source. And it says that this increase in carbon dioxide concentrations here is due to underwater volcanoes. And the reason they have to be underwater volcanoes is we see when volcanoes erupt over land. You don't see the ones underwater. But underwater volcanoes actually don't emit large amounts of carbon dioxide. So how do we know that this increase is not due to underwater volcanoes and is not due to natural variability, apart from the fact that it's the highest for 800,000 years? And the reason is the other graphic. Here we go. This rapid decline matches, is a mirror image. It's carbon dioxide from those same air bubbles. But it's the ratio of the carbon-13 carbon dioxide. Carbon has multiple isotopes, carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. Carbon-12 and carbon-13 are stable. Carbon-14 is radioactive disappears in older carbon dioxide, can also be analysed in this, shows that it's primarily old carbon dioxide that is, was in this, but it's all disappeared. How do we know that this is fossil fuel-related carbon dioxide? Well, that's because when photosynthesis takes up carbon dioxide, as shown in these graphics, it depletes the carbon-13 balance and takes up preferentially the lighter element in photosynthesis in the stomata in plants. You all learnt about the isotopes of carbon in high school. Some of you, that's about as long ago as it was for me. For some of you it's a little bit more and for some of you it's a little bit less. But you all learned about isotopes. The lighter isotopes get taken up preferentially in photosynthesis. That means when you burn something, a material that's been photosynthetically processed, like trees, or fossil coal, or fossil gas, you release more carbon-12 carbon dioxide, and the amount of carbon-13 carbon dioxide plummets. That's exactly what you can see there, and it matches. It is the mirror image. What that shows proves without any doubt whatsoever that all that increase in carbon dioxide is due to human activity. Burning fossil fuels, burning oil, burning petrol, burning fossil gas, as well as land clearing. That explains it all. It's not due to underwater volcanoes. It's not due to natural variability. Tony Abbott and Ian Plymer are wrong on many things, but they're particularly wrong on their climate science arguments, despite the fact that Tony Abbott still speaks to groups around the world, usually called climate change deniers. So I've wasted a significant part of my time on what I think is the most important graphic. How many of you have seen that graphic before? A few, I know. Robert McLean's seen it before, few others, but look, it is freely available, produced in the 
2016 State of the Climate Report. It's updated a number of times. So, let me move on. These are now some graphics. All the graphics from the IPCC assessment report are freely available. You can download them all. This is from the so-called summary for policymakers. What it shows is the temperature variations from what's called proxy data for the last 2,000 years. And again, Tony Abbott, that expert on climate change, says we know that the temperatures were warmer 2,000 years ago because Romans were going around in sandals and togas. So it must have been hot and hotter than now because Italians don't go around all year in togas and sandals. So it's got to be colder now. Well, unfortunately, he's wrong because if we look at all this proxy data from ice cores, from tree rings, from coral evidence, from cave evidence, and then compare it to the most recent observations, including a period of overlap in here, what we find is the warming in the most recent 10 and 20 years is unprecedented for at least 2,000 years. Yes, the warming, 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial level, has not been experienced for at least the whole of, not just human civilization, the whole of human existence on this planet. It is possible that more than 110,000 years ago, in the last interglacial period, there may have been short periods where temperatures were close to what they are now, but not what we're expecting for the rest of this century. So, what's the uncertainty in this? Well, there's the 1.1 degrees in uncertainty, and that uncertainty is primarily the pre-industrial temperatures way back here, where there's uncertainties of the order of one to two-tenths of a degree. But what are the best and major contributions to that warming? Well, this graphic is fantastic because we're trying to get to 1.1 degrees. What are the different contributions to that 1.1 degrees of warming? Well, you're going to have to do simple arithmetic with me, and this was even earlier in primary school. You should manage that, I hope. I'm not sure that everyone does in the parliament. <laughs> Eight-tenths of a degree warming due to the increase in carbon dioxide, half a degree of warming due to the increase in methane, and a couple of additional extra one-tenths of a degree warming from nitrous oxide, from halons. Add them all up, and you get... 1 1.8, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. Oh, we've already got enough greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to cause 1.5 degrees of warming already. Why haven't we got 1.5 degrees of warming? Well, that's because humans are very good at adding pollution to the atmosphere as well, and that pollution is leading to, when it comes out of tailpipes from cars and trucks, or when it comes out of industrial pollution from burning coal in power plants, causes particulates. Particulates reflect sunlight. You can see this whenever you drive down towards Melbourne. You get a grey haze over Melbourne from the industrial activity. And that reflects sunlight, cools the climate system by more than half a degree already. But those particulates get washed away every time it rains. 
So we know that if we stop industrial activity from burning fossil fuels, we're going to remove that source of particulates. We're going to manifest the one and a half degrees of warming we've got from the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere already. So unfortunately, part of the bad news is everything we do to try to limit global warming by stopping the use of fossil fuels is going to lead to a short-term acceleration in the warming. And don't say, well, we could fix that by just injecting more particles in the atmosphere because particles in the atmosphere kill people through air pollution. And if you put them in the upper atmosphere to reflect sunlight by injecting particles into the stratosphere, that has all sorts of other problems like it destroys the ozone layer. I've talked about 1.1 degrees of global warming. Let's now focus on the contributions to warming in Australia. And this graphic is from the most recent State of the Climate Report. We're listening to Professor David Caroli speak at the June 17, that's 2003, June 17, Swan Pool Environmental Film Festival. The title of his address was Update on Climate Change Science, Impacts and Solutions for Victoria. Let's look at this one now. What is shown with the jagged line is the year-to-year -year temperature variations right up until 2019, and then it cooled. 2019 was an El Nino year, a hot year in Australia. It was also a hot year globally. It set the hottest annual average temperature across Australia, and it's been cooler since then. This one report only came out in 2022. It was cooler in 2020 and 2021 because of the rainfall and the La Nina event. But let's look at the multi-decadal temperature variations, which is the thicker black line. That's the observations, as it says, the observed 20-year running average. And that's superimposed on climate model simulations from 1910 right up until 2020. And again, it's the 20-year running average of Australian temperatures extracted from the climate models. The models were started in simulations back in 1850. And the only change that they have in them is the human-caused emissions of greenhouse gases, natural variability to volcanic eruptions, and then the natural variability in the climate models. And it's more than 40 different climate models that have been used to simulate the global climate. So this is the range of decade-to-decade -decade temperature variations. You see the model simulations agree really well when they include the increases in greenhouse gases due to human activity. But the other important thing to look at here is let's look at the magnitude of the warming, the 20-year average warming, or even the warming over the last decade in Australia. Now, most of your memory retention should still be able to go back to the last slide. What did I say was the warming up to the most recent decade? This is not a rhetorical question. What did I say was the global average warming? 1.1 degrees. Decadal average from pre-industrial to now. Why has Australia got an average warming in the most recent decade of 1.4 to 1.5 degrees? Why is it so much larger than the global average? Most people are not fish. Most people in Australia live on land. 
Australian average temperatures are only measured on land. We know that the land average temperature is about 40 to 50 percent higher than the global average. So why do we try to limit the global average temperature, which is the average of the land and the ocean temperature, when, as I said, most people are not fish and most people live on land? Why don't we talk about the global land average temperature? Because it's 50 percent higher. Two degrees of global warming means, because it's actually shown here, there's two degrees of global warming, means nearly three degrees, 2.8 degrees of Australian average warming. And 1.5 degrees, which is also nicely shown here of global average warming, is two and a quarter degrees. So Australian average warming at one and a half degrees is going to be two and a quarter degrees. And at two degrees of global warming, which is that target under the Paris Agreement, is going to be three degrees. Three degrees for a decade or longer is greater than the Australian population, including all the indigenous peoples in Australia, have experienced ever. We've never experienced that level of warming. It will be drastic for all communities. It's important to recognise, and I want to now acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which we're meeting here in Swampool, country where I live in southeast Nam, the Bunurong people. Traditional custodians and all the countries in Australia have survived continuously. There are only, they are the only continuous indigenous communities that have sustained country and lived through the massive level of global warming from the last ice age to the current interglacial period. That was five degrees of global warming over 10,000 years, from 20,000 or 30,000 years ago to less than 10,000 years ago. The most recent 10,000 years has been very stable, in fact, has been slight cooling. But that population, all the indigenous people in Australia have stories, songlines, evidence and knowledge that will help us manage, unfortunately, the potential five degrees of global warming that we could get unless we reduce emissions rapidly. It won't be 10,000 10, years for that. It will be the next 100 years. We can learn from Indigenous communities and I recommend that you follow the ABC TV program, The Inventors, because it's not the old inventors competition, it is the inventor's story of traditional custodians and what they used to manage country. But let me look now at the future, because the same climate models that I talked about here can also be run into the future. For all emission scenarios, we get pronounced warming, ongoing warming, and this is for the 2021 to 2040 period centred on 2030, and I'll talk about that again a bit later. Let's look at 2040. Look at that, and uh, 2019, that record high year associated with the black summer extremes, ends up being an average, or even cooler than average year in the 2040s. So any dry year in the 2040s is going to have 
fire conditions just like the black summer conditions. Any drought in that period will be just as extreme as the fire conditions in the black summer. Yes, further global warming is going to make conditions a lot worse. So, what about other impacts? Let's look at Victorian impacts. This is the same sort of graphic that I showed in the previous one, but now it looks at not Australian average temperature, it looks at Victorian average temperature and the projections into the future from the most recent set of global and, sorry, most recent set of national climate projections, which use a starting point of 1995 or a baseline period. And this is the projections out to 2030. So this is the observations, the decade to decade running mean temperatures, just like in the previous graphic. Now the problem is, when you look at that for Victoria, we're tracking at the worst case of all the climate model projections. We can also look down here. What about rainfall? Well, many of you will be very much aware that if we look at rainfall in Victoria, it's been pretty flat until the 1980s, and then it started to decline consistently. This is wintertime rainfall, but it's also true of the annual average rainfall. Wintertime rainfall is tracking at the worst case of climate model projections till the 2030s. That doesn't mean that every year is like that. You can see the dramatic, very low rainfall in some years and very high rainfall in other years. And this shows the extreme rainfall that we had in 2010, and this is also the very heavy rainfall um, in the uh, sort of 2020, uh, this is only 2019, so this must, be, must have been 2016. Large year-to-year -year variability in rainfall. If we extend this out to 2022, again, very high rainfall. But we're still tracking long-term at the worst case in the climate model projections. What about temperature extremes? Again, in Victoria, how are we tracking? Well, this graphic is a graphic across Australia, sorry, across Victoria, and it shows the number of days each year for Victorian average temperatures above the one percentile, above one percent, averaged over the whole period. So the one percent baseline would mean that on average we'd expect 3.65 days. And given we don't count fractional days in a year, it's either three or four days would be the expected number throughout the whole of the century. Well, for most of that period until about 1980, we were hovering between two, three, and four degrees. Occasionally, like in the 1982 period, which had extreme bushfires, or later on in 1987-88, they were much higher than that. Let's look at 2009. 2009 was the hottest day in Melbourne, 45 degrees Celsius. The Victorian average temperatures and the bushfires in 2009 were extreme. That was the Black Saturday fires in 2009. What did we have then? Well, rather than three days, we had 15 days above the one percentile. 
five times the expected number. What about bushfire changes? Well, this is not the summertime bushfire weather. It's the number of days above the severe fire danger level, the very high fire danger level. In spring, obviously, we expect our worst fire danger days in summer. But this is what's happened in terms of fire danger days in spring. And what you can see, there's been a dramatic increase. Yes, you can again see the extreme springtime fire danger days in 1982, but look at the big increase in spring fire danger. And it's also dramatic in summer as well. But the biggest fractional changes are what's happening in spring because the fire danger season is getting longer and longer. I better get on to the good news. I will, I promise you. But before I get on to the good news, I've got to tell you what's actually in store. And to tell you about what's in store, I've got to look at what's happening in terms of this is where we're heading in future projections for global average temperature. Remember, I said before, the Paris Agreement was to try to limit global warming to under one and a half degrees. Well, there's one, there's two, there's one and a half. Well, actually, there's one and a half, just under there. All of these scenarios prior to 2050 exceed one and a half degrees of global warming in the 2030s or 2040s depending on what happens in terms of natural variability and what happens in terms of emissions. But the emission changes don't make much difference. What happens in terms of emissions is how much warming we have at the end of this century. If we rapidly reduce emissions, and I'll show that in two graphics time, we can return to below one and a half degrees in this emission scenario. But if we continue tracking on the way we're heading now, we'll get to 2.8 degrees, if we meet all the current commitments. And unfortunately, there's four degrees and five degrees of global warming. And four degrees of global warming is six degrees of across Australia. Even the 2.8 degrees, the three degrees, will mean 50 degrees Celsius days here in Swan Pool, on the outskirts of Melbourne, and throughout many parts of Australia. Not every day, but you can't do anything outside on 50 degrees Celsius days or you will die from heat exhaustion. This is a summary from the most recent IPCC assessment on the impacts of climate change across Australia. For those, all of those scenarios, these are only the high confidence risks, and I'm going to focus more on impacts in Victoria in the next slide. But let me focus on these for just a second. These high confidence risks, the highest confidence is, yes, increases in heat-related mortality for people and wildlife due to temperature extremes. But it's also adverse impacts due to marine heat waves on the Great Barrier Reef. If you want to see live corals on the Great Barrier Reef, do it soon. Because repeated coral bleaching 
on the Great Barrier Reef is becoming more and more common. And at one and a half degrees of global warming, most of the Great Barrier Reef will be experiencing annual recurrence. There are many, many ongoing impacts associated with increases in bushfires, increases in extreme flooding, increases in droughts, increases in heat waves. But these were supposed to be the future impacts. They're what we've experienced already in the last 10 years. Climate change is already impacting people and ecosystems. The final conclusion, there were nine of these high confidence conclusions, is the inability of institutions and governance systems in Australia to manage climate risks. We need to make sure that these sorts of impacts are being addressed. So what do we need to do to achieve that low emission scenario? Well, this is the only one that gets back to one and a half degrees. These are global emissions. They essentially reach zero net emissions globally by around 2050. But the Paris Agreement says that developed countries like Australia should take the lead in combating climate change. The only way that we can achieve this level of reduction in temperatures is after we get to net zero emissions and then suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and get to large negative emissions. Because this conclusion, every tonne of carbon dioxide emissions adds to global warming, means that until we get to zero net emissions globally, global temperatures are going to continue to rise. And how do we stop it rising? Well, you suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere using trees and plants, or you use the yet-to-be-invented Dyson carbon vacuum cleaner. <laughs> As I said, yet-to-be-invented. Whoever invents the economically viable, cheap carbon vacuum cleaner for direct air capture of carbon dioxide will make a lot of money. And it will also probably mean that fossil fuels, having got to zero, will have to stay at zero. So let's look at those levels of emissions. 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide being emitted every year now. It's not fallen significantly. And unfortunately, 2022 was the highest ever year of human-related carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels and from land clearing. That is not a good sign for achieving these emission reductions. This is the scenario that might be achieved, three degrees. This is probably the one that we're on track for at present. This one will only be achieved if all countries honour their Paris Agreement commitments. What does it mean for you and your children, and your grandchildren. Well, this is a really interesting graphic. This is the year-to-year -year temperatures throughout the most recent 120 years. 
each year. And you can see the red colours are the very hot temperatures in 2009 and in 2019. This is the cool scenario, only 1.5 degrees. And you can see actually a slight return of less of these reds afterwards. This is the low emission scenario. This is the one we're likely to head for. Your children or grandchildren are likely to experience a number of these increasing temperature extremes. And your grandchildren, if they've just been born, are likely to have an expected lifetime of 70 years. And that means they'll experience the end of the century temperatures. And which end of century temperatures they will experience depend on what we do and the rest of the people in the planet do. Not in 2070, in the most recent decade, or the current decade. So, what's happening in Australia? Australia elected a new federal government last year, and that new federal government set in train new legislation and a higher emission reduction target. Here's the 2030 emission projections from the current government's Department of Climate Change, Energy Emissions, uh, yeah, Energy Emissions and Water, so Energy Environment and Water, based on existing activity and projections, we would only hit 32% emission reductions. It's much more reductions than under the Scott Morrison government, but it's nowhere near the 43% commitment that the current federal government has made. There's actually only been two sectors for which there have been substantial emission reductions, either occurring or projected to occur by 2030. That's in the electricity sector because of the increase in renewable energy and it's because of what's happening in terms of land use, land use change in forestry. And this shows what's happening. There's been negative emissions because of large increases in forestry taking up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That's why land use for forestry is critically important as part of the solutions. Many people with farms are doing the right things. We also have to stop land clearing as well. So let's look at the impact in Victoria. Again, I probably won't have time to go through all of these because I've gone through most of them already. Yes, we can expect, and this is for the 2050s. I crossed out May because it's not May. We've experienced all of these, not in terms of magnitude, but in direction, already in the most recent decade. Yes, average annual temperatures will increase, about 2.4 degrees. We'll expect to get, in 2050, double the number of very hot days. 24 centimetres of sea level rise, no, there won't be beaches at Swan Pool, <laughs> except on the lake, like at Nilakuti and others. Um, more intense downpours. Well, that's what's causing the extreme flooding. Decline in cool season rainfall. Decline in alpine snowfall. 
you see that when you go to the low elevation areas at Mount Buller or try to ski on Mount Sterling now. And double the number of high fire danger days. All of those have happened already. We know that this is going to get worse. So, the Victorian government's climate change projections allow you to look at climate projections at five kilometre resolution at any location in Victoria. They have a climate projections tool with data at five kilometre resolutions. Okay, this is the baseline that is getting used. It's the sort of 1995 baseline. The average temperature in Swan Pool, average maximum temperature is 21 degrees Celsius or was in 1995. It's projected to increase in the 2030s by about a degree above that and nearly two degrees above that in the 2050s. Not as high as the whole of Victoria, but just about. Now, the worst part about this is these are the mid-range. What did I say about Victoria and Victoria's temperature and how it's tracking from 1995 till 2019? That's the top end. It's the worst case. So if you want to try and make an assessment of what plants to plant, what crops to grow, how bad it might get, don't look at the mid-range. Look at the worst case. Worst case, 1.3 degrees or 2 degrees in 2050. Rainfall. Rainfall decline, again at the worst case, probably 10% decline by 2030, which is on track and we're actually potentially going to exceed that. And about the same. Days over 35 Celsius, nearly doubling by 2030. Whereas the 2040 projection says double by 2050. Well, it's going to be way over doubling by 2050. And frosts. This is really interesting. How many of you have been monitoring frost occurrence in Swan Pool from the 1990s till the present? Um, well, you must have seen it when kids go to school. Well, not many kids walk to school. But What's happening in frosts? Are they going down or are they staying much the same in winter? Uh, it's interesting because although there's not data right here in Swanpool, there is data in Mansfield and Benalla and it shows there's actually not been a dramatic decline in frost days in June, July and August. That's because the rainfall has declined and you're getting more clear nights in winter. So if you've got more clear nights, you don't get the warming that you would expect on nighttime temperatures. Now, if you want, you can check this by monitoring frosts for the next 10 years. But you'll get bored. <laughs> and it won't be high quality data. But many locations across Victoria, particularly north of the divide, have been experiencing in some cases, increases in frosts affecting fruit and affecting crops. <clears throat> so, how do we adapt 
to climate change. There is good news. You can do things that will reduce the impact of these climate change. So what do we have to do? Improve our building design with more insulation and more shade. Now, in country areas, that's relatively common. Big verandas, more trees, far enough away to produce shade, but more insulation. Plant more trees and they capture more carbon dioxide. You need to think about, if you're a farmer, you need to think about what crops, fruits and livestock you're going to have. Because what you're going to find is many of your fruits will be temperature sensitive. You also need to think about the changes in the water available. And in particular, in many cases, think more about, and this applies to your home garden as well, you have to think about what things to plant in spring and summer, what can cope with heat stress in summer, and what can cope with reduced water availability. You also need to think about not just adaptation to the temperature extremes and the other impacts of climate change, you also have to think about, well, what can you do to reduce your human footprint in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, your carbon footprint? And there are lots of things you can do, and some of those will save you a lot of money. Fossil gas is really expensive to purchase. So is propane in tanks. So is electricity, and they're getting more expensive because someone seems to want to fight a war in Europe at present that's limiting access to fossil gas. I would argue that having limited access to fossil gas is a really good idea to reduce emissions. It just makes it more expensive. You can reduce your dependency on fossil gas and fossil coal emissions by going to solar panels and wind power. And that is readily available through mainstream suppliers as well as by putting solar panels on your roof. You can also use much more energy efficient appliances. Use a vehicle which is either an electric vehicle or is low emissions because it is very fuel efficient. I've already talked about solar power and wind power. We also need to improve our carbon sinks. Plant more forests, stop deforestation, and improve our forest management. And when we're doing that, we need to make sure it's multi-species, diverse plantations, not monoculture. Because monoculture is not what we need to create biodiverse forestry environments. The other thing you need to think about is lifestyle and behavioural change, and the best way to solve climate change is to ban advertising. Because consumption of everything is the biggest contributor to climate change and global warming. Here's my last slide. I'm going to come back to it. Oh, actually, I forgot that I'd put that in there. Okay.
summary. You can read it. I can read it. I'm not going to. There are two critical aspects of climate change that need to be addressed. You need to be aware of and manage the risks associated with the impacts of climate change. Heat stress, bushfires, floods, sea level rise, and lack of snow. How we do that isn't necessarily easy. We also need to rapidly transition to a zero carbon society. The most confident impacts are listed there and I've talked about all of them. Unfortunately, in Victoria, we're tracking at the worst case of climate projection. So if you want to plan your garden, your farm, your house for 10 years time, plan for the worst case because it might well eventuate and it has for the most recent decade. The good news is we can do all this now. We don't need to wait for something to be changed. The Victorian government is setting much more realistic emission reduction targets, 75 to 80% emission reductions by 2035, zero emissions by 2040. That still isn't enough, but it's much better than what the federal government now has with the Labour Party. This is a movie festival, the best movie on carbon and its impacts doesn't just look at the most 100 years, it looks at 4 billion years of carbon on planet Earth. It's called Carbon, the Unauthorised Biography. It's a documentary, it was released on TV and it was available on iView until a month ago. You can still get it by contacting ABC and lobbying them to put it back on iView because it's so important. Or you can get it for your school, sorry, your children's school or your grandchildren's school through the education website which still has copies available. And get your school to show it and then you can go and watch it at school with your son or daughter or grandchildren. It is a fantastic documentary. The tight time schedule reduced the amount of time for questions, and in fact there was only one, and that was about scope three carbon emissions. The Australian emissions, or any country's emissions, are categorised as scope one emissions, and even your own emissions are categorised as your own personal emissions, scope one. Scope 1 emissions in Australia are the emissions by industry and people and transport. Scope 2 emissions are the emissions that you didn't cause, but things that you purchased caused, like your electricity from coal-fired power stations. Oh, I know you're not doing that anymore, or you won't be tomorrow. <coughs> or the petrol in your car which will cause emissions, but it's the refining of that petrol or the extraction. That's scope two. Scope three is the emissions that someone 
well, that occurred way outside and they occurred. So when we think about a country, scope one and two are internal domestic emissions. That 32% emission reduction target is scope one and two emissions in Australia. But it doesn't count the implied emissions from when Australia digs up coal and fossil gas and exports it overseas. The magnitude of that exported fossil fuel, it's been exported because someone's going to burn it. There are explicit emissions associated with those exports and those emissions are double. 1.2 billion, sorry, million tons. No, sorry, 1.2 billion tons rather than 600 million tons. Australia's emissions are a little less than 600 now. They're only 500 approximately. So Australian emissions have fallen but the exports are going up. Australia is the second largest exporter of fossil fuel emissions and the Australian government doesn't want you to be aware that the Australian government and BHP and Exxon and the exporters of fossil gas are responsible for twice as much emissions from their exports of fossil gas and coal. It's the so-called drug dealer's argument. <laughs> where the drug dealers don't worry about the damage that's happening to the user. Unfortunately, Australia's exports of fossil gas and coal do impact Australia because they add to global warming and they're twice as big as the domestic emissions. Had you been among the 150 people at the film festival, you would have enjoyed the presentation by Professor Caroli so much more because he pointed repeatedly to various slides. But as he said earlier, those slides will soon be available to the Benella Sustainable Futures Group and they'll be on their website. And so you'll find a link to that group in the show notes. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much to Professor Caroli for allowing me to mic him up. And thanks also to the organisers of the Swanpool Environmental Film Festival for allowing me to record this session. And beyond that, it was a great event. And you'll find a link for that in the show notes. As I said, this ends this episode of Climate Conversations. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share it with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis and how we should behave. And I'd love to hear from you about this podcast, what you think about it, what stories I should be pursuing. And you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. And one other thing, don't forget to follow this podcast because if you do that you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode so until we talk again please take care